Irish Times Inside Business Podcast in association with Your Next Dublin, the new home of the Irish Stock Exchange. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast. I'm Cliff Taylor. It was another nervous week for the global economy as the spread of COVID-19 coronavirus intensified around the world. The US Federal Reserve cut interest rates in an attempt to reinsure investors, but the effects so far appear to be short-lived. Is a global downturn now inevitable? And what does this mean for Ireland? We'll talk to a leading economist. We'll also find out about an Irish biotech company whose device is at the front line of global efforts to detect and prevent the spread of disease. And later on, my colleague Simon Carswell will be here to explain how the personal insolvency regime is helping debtors after a high-profile case this week. But first, I'm joined by Conal McQuilla, Chief Economist at Davy, to talk about the Irish economic outlook and the impact of COVID-19. Conal, thanks for joining us. We've seen a lot of positive indicators for the economy this week. The tax revenue figures have been very strong. Activity indicators are strong. But yet the global economic forecasts are now being cut because of COVID-19. How concerned should we be about the outlook for Ireland? Um, Well, look, I suppose the main thing to ask yourself is, you know, what is the nature of COVID-19? And I think the general view is that it is a temporary thing. Mm. When we get to the summer, hopefully the spread will stop. And ultimately, it's not leading to, um, well, only 1% to 2% of people are dying from it. Sure. Um, So, I mean, ultimately, it's a temporary in nature. It's something that's going to hold back the world economy uh, for a period of time. But, um, you know, the question is, is it going to be a V-shaped recovery or is it going to be something that's a bit more um, substantial on you know, really hurts growth this year. And I suppose we began the week with the OECD who revised down their forecast for global GDP growth to 2.4%. Mm. And they also warned that if you got the kind of outbreak you're seeing in China replicated in the rest of uh, Europe and the United States, you might be looking at maybe 1.5% GDP growth, which I suppose people would, you know, that would certainly be the weakest since the great financial crisis. Sure. And I suppose the other thing that we're seeing at the moment is in China itself. Um, so we really have no hard data on how the Chinese economy has reacted and we got the first survey this week, the purchasing manager indices. So they, they were 40 for the manufacturing sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they were... Um, Which is a huge contraction. Uh, but also... Point to a huge contraction. Point to a huge contraction. But also, um, much more worrying than that was the services sector, where the PMI reading was 26. Mm. So this is much worse than expected. And people sort of saying, rather than seeing the economy sort of slow by 4 or 5% mm. uh, in the first, second quarter of the year, you might see a contraction of maybe 7 8%. Wow. Um, and then, you know, the question is, we get a rebound after that. Now, if you look at what's happening in China at the moment, um, Chinese data is always a little bit <laughs> difficult to read. Sure. The Communist Party is a target for GDP growth of 5.6% mm. uh, this year. Uh, and I suspect they'll get that mm. uh, one way one way or the other. But um, people looking at other indicators like, uh, for example, car sales, you know, how much sort of passenger traffic there are on the roads, electricity output, and those have all slumped. Uh, enormously. So it looks like you're going to see a pretty hefty contraction in the Chinese economy. And the question is, do we start to see the same thing in Europe, in the United States, if, if the um, if the virus gets out of control? And I suppose it's not the virus itself that really counts, it's the reaction. Mm-hmm. Now, in China, you're seeing you know, cities being locked down. Um, but the question is, you know, will you see that in Europe? You know, in Italy, they're locking down 11 uh, towns and cities. Um, so... Unfortunately, I suppose this is one of these issues where rare for an economist to say we don't really know. But I mean, sure. hopefully this is something that just passes in one or two quarters. But the impact could be quite severe during that period. Mm. So disruption rather than destruction, as um, as Mark Carney put it yesterday. Were you surprised 
that the Fed moved so quickly. Um, they didn't even have a scheduled meeting this week. It's the first uh, emergency interest rate cut, you might say, since the financial crisis. Were you surprised they went so quickly? I think it was. There was a statement on Friday and uh, from the Fed saying they'd act as appropriate, which is the kind of thing they say pretty much every meeting anyway. Mm. Uh, but it wasn't um, scheduled at that particular statement. So maybe that was a clue we should have been focused in on a bit more. Uh, the G7 had a statement on Monday. People saw that as a little bit disappointing. Um, the last time the G7 did that, that kind of statement was in the financial crisis and that followed. That was followed up by coordinated action. Um, and I suppose the markets kind of looked at um, Powell's statement after the cut and were a little bit nonplussed, I think. Um, you know, cutting interest rates isn't going to, you know, help disruption to supply chains. Sure. Uh, you know, US companies that can't get parts from China, it's not going to stop people from self-isolating and staying at home. Um, and I suppose, in general, it's kind of fed into that sort of issue, particularly well, more so in Europe, that, you know, next week the ECB meets, will it cut the deposit rate? Will it do things to, say, the TLTRO program to encourage lending to businesses? Uh, but ultimately, monetary policy isn't really a great tool to uh, liquidity fight uh, viruses. You know, there's plenty of liquidity out there. Um, so, you know, there's people sort of saying with the Fed, was it a communications gaffe again? Mm. Clearly, the Fed are under a lot of pressure from uh, President Trump. Um, but sort of people sort of saying, you know, is the Fed reacting a little bit too much to the sort of market moves and should be waiting and seeing rather than doing another emergency uh, cut when there's very little sign so far of um, either the trade war with China or the virus itself uh, disrupting the US economy. We've got the um, jobs report on Friday this week. So, you know, if the virus is contained or doesn't sort of take off in the United States, people will be saying maybe the Fed overreacted. Do you expect the ECB to move next week or to keep their powder dry, as they say? Well, like if you look at the ECB, they're forecasting GDP growth of 1% for this year, mm. inflation of 1% as well. Um, you know, that's that can only be revised down at this point, given what we've seen. So, um, you know, the ECB itself, you know, is talking about downside risks. Obviously, there's a new president. There's a review of monetary policy ongoing. So I think on balance, they'll have to do something. Yeah. Um, will that be a cut to deposit rate, perhaps, to 0.6%? Uh, maybe tweaking this TLTRO program, which is effectively extra funding for banks to lend to businesses. Yeah. But I think at the same time, Lagarde is likely to say, you know, frankly, there's only so much the ECB can do and it's really up to sort of finance ministers to put together their package um, of responses to the, the virus. So you've seen Italy, for example, you know, sidelining around sort of 0.2% of GDP, people feeling there was a nod from the commission to uh, not worry too much about the fiscal rules and uh, it's really up to finance ministers to sort of provide that extra fiscal funding to deal with the issue. Sure. What should we look out for in the Irish economy in terms of, uh, of, th of this affecting us? Um, well, I suppose there's a chain of data that we get, the surveys itself, so consumer confidence. But it's obviously the key things we're looking for are things like retail sales mm. to start with, uh, the unemployment rate data, um, tax revenues, any sort of signs of effectively trips to Ireland uh, falling away from the UK. So if you take the foot and mouth um, issue back in 2001, um, the Hotels Federation was saying bookings were down 10 to 15% during that period. Mm. Passenger numbers fell by 7% in the second and third quarters of the year in 2001. Now, there was also the slowdown in the US economy at that particular time. Um, but it's those kind of short-term indicators in retail spending, um, tourism, um, that you know we're kind of watching out for really to sort of see if there's a big impact on uh, the economy. But look, having said that, Ireland is an open economy. It really depends what happens to world trade. Sure. Um, you know, we're not really linked into the sort of supply chains from China. Mm. Um, you know, there's not that many Irish companies. Um, well, there's certainly are companies, but 
you know, we produce, you know, we're specialised in technology, the ICT sector, pharmaceuticals. These are not areas where there's, you know, companies are really sort of dependent on these supply chains from China. So um, we are relatively insula- insulated. And of course, we've only had two cases so far. So hopefully things will be okay. Sure. Um, there is also, I guess, the issue of disruption in the workplace. Um, there was forecasts out in the UK this week, which were extraordinary, that up to one in five people might be missing from work for for a few weeks at least uh, at the peak of the at the peak of the outbreak, that clearly would be, albeit perhaps in the short term, would be very disruptive economically. Um, absolutely. And I suppose the other point that came through from uh, uh, the unions in the UK was that two million workers in the UK uh, won't have sick pay mm. um, and, you know, can't, um, will be financially hit if they do take that time off. So will they actually go home? And I suppose also the sort of um, staffing concerns in the health service as well mm. um, would be an issue there too. And the, would you foresee pressure on spending uh, in terms of the health service f- f- from the government in Ireland? I would, but again, being a simple economist, I'm not sure what the extent of that extra sure. spending would have to always, be. Always pressure on the depend health service, on the, I guess, yeah. uh, Well, obviously, depend on how many cases we have. Pulling back, from, I guess, from COVID-19 on its, on its own, obviously the Brexit talks look to be in some, uh, well, not difficulty, they're only just starting, but there seems to be a good deal of uncertainty about what might happen and whether... The UK will, in fact, do a deal with the EU or will crash out of the EU trading regime at the end of, of this year. So we've COVID-19, we've Brexit, uh, we've corporate tax changes being discussed at the OECD. Is, is there a possibility we've seen the best of the growth for the Irish economy in the last few years that whatever happens now, we're going to see slower growth over the next few years? Well, look, I think that's inevitable in any case. We've sort of seen the catch-up period. Yeah. So the unemployment rate is down to 5%. So um, you know, employment's been growing by 3% per annum. Um, we're not going to be able to sustain that uh, unless, you know, the economy effectively, I think, goes into a bubble. Sure. Uh, and, you know, I think everyone is expecting a slowdown at some point. The only question is when it happens. And I suppose what's kind of kept the figures in the sort of astronomical territory has mm-hmm. been the um, the multinationals kind of ensuring that GDP is growing sort of 8% per annum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but jobs growth has been pretty consistent around 3%. And, you know, we just can't sustain that when the labour force is um, only growing at 2%. Uh, and unemployment is, you know, getting down to these levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of these risks, um, look, there's always risks. Three or four years ago, we we're talking about the breakdown of the euro, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Greek debt crisis. Sure. So there's always things out there to um, be worried about. Um, but in terms of what we do ourselves, the economy is moving closer to full capacity. We've got very positive demographics, which, you know, leads to natural growth in the labour force. Um, but in terms of the risk, you mentioned Brexit. Um, you know, there's a fundamental disagreement at the moment between the UK and Europe about the nature of the trade deal. Uh, that they want. Frankly, I find it hard to believe Boris Johnson will really follow through mm. on what he says he wants. Um, the Canada-type trade deal he mentions doesn't have anything in terms of services. Mm. Um, the EU is not going to give the UK a legal agreement that gives them financial market equivalents uh, for the long term. Obviously, that might be traded away against the fish issue. Uh, we'll see about that. But ultimately, if you look at the industry bodies in the UK, they do not want to um, have big diversions with the European Union. Uh, particularly the service sectors, business services, financial services. So if Boris Johnson goes ahead with this Canada-type trade deal, it will hurt the UK economy quite badly. The other point is that he can say he wants a trade deal with the EU by the end of the year. That's almost certainly not likely to happen. There just isn't time. And it's fine to sort of sabre rattle and say that you're prepared to leave in June. But the UK hasn't concluded trade deals with the rest of the world. It hasn't secured agreement from most countries to roll over the existing trade agreements they have with the European Union. And of course, I suppose there's an assumption in Britain that they can kind of bank 
what they've already achieved uh, with the European Union in terms of trade deals with Australia, or the rest, you know, the various trade deals uh, that the EU has done. But I mean, those trade deals may well have to be renegotiated and perhaps even renegotiated in less favourable uh, terms than the UK currently has. Uh, so really, I think we're at the sort of bravado point in the negotiations. The UK has got no cards to play. If it leaves with a candidate-type trade deal on goods, if that's even possible, that would be an enormous hit for its economy and uh, will go down extremely badly. And my own personal view is the man in the street in the UK has very little interest in uh, financial market equivalents or uh, divergence on EU single market rules for you know abstract sectors like um, business services or consultancy. So... I suspect we'll get a fudge and it's just a question of organising that at some point in the future. But as we speak, the two sides couldn't be further apart. Sure. And finally, we assume at some stage over the next few months that a couple of parties will sit down to look at the outlook for Ireland and try and put together a programme for government. There were forecasts done before the election uh, on the basis of a reasonable Brexit deal and obviously without the knowledge that COVID-19 was going to hit is the ballpark now changed for those negotiations or can the negotiators, when they when they sit down from whatever parties they are, reasonably assume that this will be a short-term thing and that looking out over the term of a government, uh, that the outlook is still reasonably reasonably solid for the public finances? Well, look, I suppose it depends on how seriously you took the manifestos in the first place. Sure. Uh, this uh, $11 billion, um, comes from the Department of Finance's official projections. Yeah. But it was always on the basis that growth would slow uh, below 3% um, with some conservative assumptions around say the impact of the OCD tax reforms uh, but it, you know that 11 billion was contingent on the economy kind of you know growing close to its trend rate so look obviously COVID-19 is a threat to that um, as Brexit is a threat to that as well so um, you know there we were running a surplus I suppose the question is are we going to spend that uh, we may well do if uh, we have the housing crisis no we shouldn't of course we shouldn't we all know that uh, which we reducing our debt GDP ratio, and you know if you spend money when the economy is close to full capacity, what you get is inflation. Mm. So you take the social housing issue, mm. um, parties, you know, allocating billions of euro for social housing and promising to build fifty, sixty, or even one hundred thousand houses in the context of a construction sector where we are close to full capacity. There's labour shortages for construction workers. We're only building twenty thousand houses. So if you were to really try to build one hundred thousand houses in the current environment. Uh, public or private, uh, you would just lead to enormous inflation because the capacity isn't there to build them. And what we should have had in the election campaign was a proper debate about attracting construction workers into Ireland and lowering wage costs, about how you actually free up land. Um, I see Dublin City Council are considering going to the High Court uh, for a second time uh, to overturn an on-board penal decision. Uh, so, I mean, these are the issues that hold back land supply and push up the prices of um, push up the price of housing. So, I mean, those are the structural issues which should have been addressed uh, rather than sort of grandstanding and allocating billions, and billions of euro for home building, which, you know, the issue, there's plenty of money there to build social housing. The issue is actually getting it off the ground and implementing that. Um, so, um, you know, that's the broad issue that we face, that the economy is close to capacity. If you throw money at particular issues, you just get inflation and wage pressures. Okay. Colin McCullough, thanks very much for joining us. A product created by Randox Laboratories, an Antrim-based biotechnology firm, is in demand for its ability to test for the COVID-19 coronavirus. To find out about it, I'm joined by Mark Campbell, 
a senior manager with Randox. Before we come on to discussing uh, your, your, your latest developments in, in regard to COVID-19, give us a bit of background about Randox. The company's been around for, for a good few years at this stage. Yes, well, well thank you, Cliff, and it's my, my pleasure to join you. Uh, well, Randox are, are now, in fact, Ireland and the UK's largest diagnostic company. Uh, we've been active since 1982, formed initially in uh, County Antrim, and we now have a major plant in, in County Donegal and Dunloe. Uh, and, and our focus really is on what we would refer to as blood science diagnostics, that's the analysis of principally blood, uh, plasma and serum, to look for biomarkers of disease. Okay. So we've been active uh, since 1982. We're now exporting to 145 countries around the world with a staff level of about 1,500, of which a quarter, just over 400, around 400, are uh, research scientists and engineers. I think that's one of the key aspects about Randox is we're absolutely focused on innovation okay. and new technologies to improve diagnostics. And I think really our driver uh, within all this is that we think that diagnostics are key to improving healthcare in the future, uh, to aim to move healthcare systems from which we would uh, say really in, in soundbite terms to move from uh, sickness management, i.e. dealing with people who report sick and trying to cure them, sure. to prevention. And by early diagnosis, at the very earliest stage of an indication of, of disease, then that can be treated to improve patient outcomes and reduce the cost on healthcare services. So, you know, it's a, it's a significant capability. Sure, it's a win-win, yeah. Tell us a bit about your biochip uh, technology, Mark, because I, I know that's been important in this latest development. Sure. Uh, from, from a layman's point of view, it, is a biochip something that allows a lot of tests to be conducted at the same time? Is that a reasonable summation of it? Yes, that, that's right. And I think a, a good analogy is if, if, if um, your, the listeners are, can remember back to you know, the, the, the olden days of analog telephones. Sure. And if you imagine an old telephone exchange you know, where you, you, you dialed a six on a, a circular dial and somewhere in exchange something went click, 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 six times to register that number. That is largely how diagnostics are still done. Right. So if you're having 10, de- 10 tests undertaken, each test is done individually in an analog sense. So some blood is measured with a, a, a mixed with a chemical, and then that chemical reaction measured. Sure. What Randox do is to put all those tests onto a single biochip, uh, and pictorially, a biochip is, is nine millimeters by nine millimeters. So if you can imagine something about the size of your little fingernail, okay. and using various uh, nanotechnology techniques, we can spot antibodies or genetic material onto a chip, and currently we can do uh, 49 on a 7 by 7 matrix, 49 um, spots, and therefore simultaneous tests. Uh, and our next iteration will be a 10 by 10, so that's 100 tests. And we know it's certainly theoretically possible to do 32 by 32 wow. on a 9 millimeter square, which will give you a 1,000 tests. And really, that is taking um, diagnostics and medicine to a whole new level, uh, where through algorithms and artificial intelligence, we will be able to greatly improve diagnosis by looking for the minimalist signaling of disease across multiple markers. So where is this uh, biochip manufactured, Mark? Well, um, the biochip for COVID-19, for those 10 viruses, is manufactured in, in our facilities in County Antrim. Um, however, the analyzer, so the, the chip, if you like, is um, where the test is conducted. But we then need an analyzer to, to read the results from the chip. Sure. Uh, it's what's known as a chemiluminescent process and to identify the, the emission of light and measure the emission from light. The analyzers that would then read the chip are manufactured in Dunlow and County Donegal. 
Okay, so and they're, that particular analyzer is called an evidence investigator, uh, and we're very proud of the team in, in Donegal and their uh, effectiveness and efficiency in manufacturing that piece of equipment. So genuine cross-border operation? Absolutely, and we would view ourselves very much as an all-Ireland company. Okay, that's very interesting. T- tell us now how you've applied this technology to COVID-19. Right, so we, we, have, um, we have a capability here, and, and uh, we've already developed... Uh, prior to the, the um, appearance of COVID-19, a res- what we refer to as a respiratory biochip, where we had developed a number of viral tests um, so we could identify a number of viruses, including some of the coronavirus family. Sure. Um, so when this new asset came along, this was an area we, we already had expertise and understanding, and it was a matter of, of gaining knowledge on that specific assay and then uh, placing that assay onto our, onto our biochip. So within uh, two weeks, we've been able to identify, characterize, if you like, the, the new virus and develop uh, an assay to that test, okay. uh, to that virus. And this is now on the market, or in the market, it I should is. say. Yeah. Um, and where we, are, where we are unique, Cliff, in, in this aspect is that, go back to the analogy of, of you know, an analog telephone exchange uh, and, uh, and a digital telephone exchange, yeah. we, are, we have now put all our other viral tests plus the new COVID test, COVID-19 test, onto the biochip. So what we can do is run 10 viruses simultaneously. Now, that's important where individuals perhaps may have a viral infection, which would have exactly the same symptoms as COVID-19 and cause some doubt or confusion within the the healthcare analysis piece. So we can analyze uh, an individual and differentiate between COVID-19 and other perhaps less severe infections but which present with exactly the same symptoms. Okay, so it's not just uh, you, you, you either have or you don't have COVID-19, the chances are that whatever the patient had has is going to be diagnosed by this test. Yes, because someone may appear with exactly the same symptoms and this will provide a differentiation. Sure. Um, the other aspect and great benefit of multiplexing is that the WHO guidance is that you should run two tests to confirm COVID-19 and we right. can run, the, both those tests are on this chip so uh, a positive COVID-19 test on our chip is already confirmed. So again, it speeds up that process and then promotes more efficient treatment and more efficient isolation if that's required for the, for the patient's concern. Okay. And where have you sold these uh, sold these chips to, Mark? Uh, well, we're active. I could tell you we now have 40 countries that we're engaged with who, who've okay. come to us expressing specific interest on those chips. Uh, we're shortly, uh, this week, we're shipping some uh, chips some uh, to Wuhan or to China, including Wuhan. Okay. Um, we have interest from the Japanese, Public Health England and so on. So there is a, a wide variety of, of organizations. Uh, perhaps best at this stage, they because this is still early days in this development, they, they want to get the chips to do their own initial assessment yes. and then plan to roll out after that. Okay, but clearly there's a, going to be significant demand for this over the next few months, it would appear. Uh, yes, well, we've got to see how, how this develops. Um you know, as a concern. I mean, the other aspect which we would highlight um, within the Randox capability is we were able to develop this capacity or this test within two weeks of uh, our awareness of it. Sure. Now, um, this is a, clearly a significant public health concern, but it will be addressed and we will come through this eventually. Um, but we are obviously mindful of what might happen after that and what might happen beyond that. Um, so we are very well positioned then should there be a subsequent virus um, and uh, if you like a variant on COVID-19 appear, then we're very well positioned to respond very quickly 
to ensure that the public have access to a and healthcare systems have access to an effective test. Okay, so 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 there's a risk that some kind of related virus might appear in the months ahead. Well, not necessarily the months ahead, but um, there's always the risk of this communicate into something slightly different. Sure. But obviously, before we've had related viruses like SARS and MERS and yes. now COVID nineteen. So if you if you think this is the the third perhaps iteration of a significant virus, there are other coronaviruses around which have not been so critical. But let's say if that's the third, it's unlikely to be the last. Indeed. And you're also involved in testing in, at your own Antrim headquarters, uh, some, some samples. Yes, we are, yeah. Is that for healthcare providers or for corporates or what, uh, that, what basis is that done? At that at the minute, we have this capability and we have our own, own laboratories. So we, we thought it would be prudent to make that available to those who, let's say, were not applicable to you know, the healthcare screening programs uh, that are provided. Sure. Uh, our greatest interest thus far has been from corporates who would like to provide support to their staff, perhaps staff who have travelled overseas but have arrived back with, perhaps without symptoms or want to check themselves through, sure. or those who have self-isolated perhaps uh, who would like some degree of assurance that, um, that you know, the test can be done quickly for them. Okay, um, Mark Campbell, Senior Manager with Randox, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Next, a high-profile case in the insolvency court this week grabbed the headlines. Here to discuss this and the implications for those with heavy debts, I'm joined by Irish Times Public Affairs Editor, Simon Carswell. Simon, there was a high-profile case in the insolvency court this week. Tell us what happened. Well, this case involved uh, the couple Theresa Lowe and Frank McNamara. People will know Theresa Lowe from when she presented a quiz on RTE and as an RTE presenter and will remember Frank McNamara as the director, musical director of The Late Late Show. And they got into financial difficulties. Actually, going back quite some time in and around just after the boom, they... Uh, got into some difficulties. Frank McNamara had uh, uh, struggled to get his music royalties. He was owed about a million euro in music royalties and um, they couple remortgaged properties to tide them over to what they thought would be short-term financial difficulties but they actually ended up getting into quite a lot of financial difficulty because of the crash. They sold some properties but they were left uh, with about 3.7 million euro worth of debt which they had to resolve. So in and around 2016 they decided to formally apply for uh, protection under the personal insolvency regime and they went for what's called a personal insolvency arrangement which allows them to restructure their debts and to come out clean the other side with a fresh financial start. What's the difference, Simon, between personal insolvency and bankruptcy? A lot of people will be familiar with bankruptcy but... Personal insolvency is different, isn't it? It is. Well, personal insolvency arrangements are very new. They're PIAs for short. And PIAs are, they were introduced in 2012. It was post-crash legislation that was introduced to deal with the vast amount of personal debt that was in the system after the banking crash and after the property crash. And it was introduced to help to deal, people to deal with specifically unsustainable secured debt. So that's mortgages, that's debt like that's secured against the value of your home, the property. And the idea behind it was that you would reach an agreed settlement where it was secured, your mortgage, and unsecured like credit card debt of up to 3 million euro would be restructured. Now, there is that cap at 3 million, but it can be increased with uh, agreement from your secured creditors. There's a limit of six years put on the period in which the debts are dealt with. Now, that can be extended to seven years. And um, that those PIAs uh, were put in place in the legislation and they, it was found that they weren't really working, mainly because banks and creditors were objecting to it. They didn't like the idea that debt could be written down um, in these arrangements. And 
Yes, and so it was them taking significant hits. And at the time, you'll remember, there was a lot of talk about whether people should be entitled to debt write-offs on their mortgages. So your neighbour might be paying their mortgage in full, you can't afford to pay your mortgage. So there's all sorts of issues around moral hazard. Are you encouraging reckless behaviour by letting people write off debt when other people are having to pay their debts and their mortgage debts as they fold you? So um, in 2015, the legislation was changed and creditors had had objected prior to that. So this legislation, legislative change removed what was called the bank veto or the creditor veto. And so after 2015, there's now a court review where a mortgage lender, if they have rejected a borrower's proposed PIA, it goes to court and that mortgage lender can have their veto overruled. And that's what happened in the case of uh, Theresa Lowe and Frank McNamara. So was the decision significant in this case, given that this is newish legislation? Well, the interesting thing here is that it's not new in itself. There's quite a few of these PIAs going through the courts. I mean, the difference is, is just how profile they are. They're, they're a very high profile couple. They're very well known. And for that reason, it generated a lot of publicity. But in fact, there's about 100 of these being approved a month. If you look at the figures since the bank veto was removed, there's been about 4,000 PIAs approved. So 1,000 last year, that was up 10% on the previous year. But what's interesting is, is they were going through very slowly. It is an effective means to deal with your personal debt, but it wasn't a very fast way to deal with it. And if you look at Theresa Lowe and Frank McNamara's case, that had been going on for three and a half years. So it's quite some time since they started it. And so the whole idea of what the legislation was hoped to achieve, um, yes, it is achieving it, but not at the speed that they were hoping. And the difficulty that's arisen in, in the past couple of years is that while the bank veto has been removed, you have uh, creditors, banks, but mainly private equity or so-called vulture funds who have bought this uh, legacy debt from banks. They're now um, objecting to it and throwing up what, what are regarded as technical objections. And so the personal insolvency court, if you go down there of a Monday morning in front of Mr. Justice Dennis MacDonald, you'll hear quite a few objections raised by funds. And that's really slowing the whole process down. Okay. Interesting. Uh, are there many other people out there who could benefit from this? I mean, if you look at the figures and the central bank has some very thorough figures that they produce every quarter and there's quite a large bad overhang from the uh, financial crash. So if you think of the total mortgages in the country, there's about 740,000 home mortgages in the country. And the central bank figures show that about 43,000 of those are in arrears of 90 days or more. That's about 6%. But the more problem cases are, are, are mortgage arrears of over 720 days. So people who are struggling to pay mortgages and are in arrears uh, over a two-year period are longer. And there's almost 28,000 of those. So there are quite a large number of mortgages out there that in many cases people are struggling to deal with. They could have bought properties where they they were they were bought at the peak of the market. They've dropped significantly in value. They still may have a boom time mortgage value, um, mortgage amount on that property and they're struggling to pay that mortgage off. So these kinds of solutions could work for them um, potentially. There are other solutions, for example, the debt for equity swap, which is still being tested and, and still really requires approval um, uh, before the courts and in the legal process. Tell us a bit more about that debt for equity uh, issue, Simon. Well, the debt for equity swap, uh, it's an interesting one because, again, like the PIA, it was put in the legislation in 2012 with a view to, well, this might work. So what would happen is, is where a borrower couldn't pay the mortgage on their home, uh, a debt for equity swap would be agreed. And so instead of uh, the bank... Um, being owed the full mortgage amount, the amount might be reduced to, say, 50% of the current value of the home and that, let's say, uh, 30% of the value of the home would be transferred into equity or ownership in the property. And so 
the, the lender would then become part owner of the property and that debt would be written off. And the view is that what would happen is over a period of time, let's say the person is in their 50s or 60s, that by the time they... Uh, by the time they die, if the property goes into an estate, then when the house is eventually sold, that the lender will be able to get their money back from the sale of the house uh, from in, in the estate. Um, it's complicated. Uh, banks don't like it because it means them going from a very different situation. They're going from being that of lender to being that of part owner. And really it hasn't been worked hasn't worked through and there was a very significant judgment in a case that was um that judge macdonald ruled on on um on monday where he basically said that uh, he couldn't approve, the court couldn't approve debt for equity swaps and personal insolvency arrangements without the consent of the relevant secured creditor. That kind of makes sense in a way because you can't force a creditor to become part owner in a property. And what he has said is he's kicked it back to the legislature. He said it's up now to the Oireachtas to figure this out. Um, the legislation wasn't really drafted in a way to make this work. So he's saying it's to go back to the Oireachtas. He's saying it's not for me to decide the way to do it. But what he is saying, he said, if there's any amendments to be made, he said, I'd strongly urge any of these provisions, including new debt resolution solutions, they should be set out in sufficient detail to enable practitioners, debtors and creditors to identify and fully understand the precise scope and boundaries of any such solution. So he's saying, yeah, there's, there's something in this. This could work but you really have to put it in fine print and in sure. detail as to how it would work. Finally, there's always arguments when people get debts written off. Uh, there's always debate, you know, I'm still paying my mortgage, you've got yours written off. Um, and some people will, might be annoyed that, that um, Theresa Lowe and Frank McNamara got such a big, uh, big, big amount of their debt written off relating to failed investments. Should they be? Well, I don't think they should because these are debts that need to be resolved. Um, yeah, there was the issue of the moral hazard, but the problem is that it, during the boom times, you had regular people getting into the buy-to-let space. They became landlords. A lot of people decided not to have pensions and instead of pensions, they put their money into buying a second or third property. Um, and if you look at the sums of money, the cap of three million on the PIA, it's not, it, it is a lot of money, of course it is, but you're not talking about kind of the serious professional landlords who would use this. You're essentially talking about people who would have a family home and then maybe one or two more properties. Those are the kind of people that this legislation and this debt solution was created for. So yes, people will get angry. There's a lot of comment on social media that you know that this is this is um this is a, a tool for the rich and for the famous to use, but it's not. I mean, the vast majority of these PIAs that are being agreed are for people on fairly modest incomes and largely involve just the family home. There are people who are struggling to make ends meet. They have boom time mortgages that they can't really afford. Uh, and like they have overheads like everyone else. They have children in college. They have overheads to meet. And so that's what uh, this system is created for. It's to help everyone, including uh, people who have buy-to-let properties. You might say, seeing as a lot of debt was written down during the crisis, why should uh, ordinary borrowers not be allowed to benefit from that? Well, that's the point. And um, I think that anyone who would say that this is an easy ride only have to look at what Theresa Lowe and Frank McNamara went through. Like, this is three plus years. They've had a lot of detail poured over in public. They've had a lot of court dates. There's been a lot of objections raised by Tanninger, the fund that owns their debt, the bulk of their debt. So this was by no means an easy process and it certainly wasn't an overnight write-down. So while the system is creating mechanisms to help people. It's not quick. It needs to be far quicker. And as the judge himself has said this week, the Oireachtas needs to act to make things better and easier and to really create um, new mechanisms to allow people to deal with what is very old debt now and very unsustainable debt. Simon Carswell, thank you. Thanks. 
That's all we have time for this week. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, goodbye and thank you very much for listening.